Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Kay, a senior editor at Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events. And this week's guest might be the youngest we've ever had on the podcast. She's Sahar Tartak, a freshman at Yale University and a fellow at the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, where, full disclosure, I serve on the Board of Advisors. In a recently published Wall Street Journal article, Sahar tells the story of what happened to her last year at her highly rated Long Island Public High School, where she served as student government treasurer. School officials were intent on bringing in a racial equity group that was going to deliver a paid lecture on the evils of institutional racism. And Sahar didn't feel comfortable signing off on a $375 check to a group that she didn't know much about. Moreover, it bothered her that many of the students at her school, who were either Jewish or Hispanic, seemed to be lumped in with lectures about the problems with whiteness. And when she raised questions about whether she and her fellow students should be lectured to in this way, in the name of anti-racism education, school officials became furious, comparing her to someone who questioned the evils of slavery, or who would block a Holocaust survivor from speaking at the school. But in the end, Sahara succeeded in raising the issue all the way to the school board, where she received a standing ovation for her efforts. I spoke to Sahar Tartak in October, just as she was beginning her first year at Yale. Here are excerpts from our conversation. I guess my first question relates to this social cringe that I had as I was reading your article, because I was just thinking about your experience at school, like after this episode you described, you know, you were still a student in high school. What kind of interactions did you have with some of these teachers and staff who were accusing you of having horrible views? Would you meet them on the hallway and just (laughs) pretend nothing had happened? Sometimes people will be bullies and then go into acting like nothing happened. Right. And there's really no other option but to play along with it. So, like, I felt very uncomfortable playing along with it, but we still had student government meetings and I still had social studies class, so... You made the decision not to name the principal or your social studies teacher, the teacher who was the liaison to student government. Is that something you thought about, whether to identify them or not? I don't want them getting attacked or backlash. I just don't believe in returning somebody's distress with more distress. A lot of what my reasoning here is it can never happen again. And I wanted to make every effort for that to be the case. So like, I guess not only will my high school now be more cautious, but I have a feeling that when these stories come out, it causes other institutions to have the same concern. Like, oh, I can't be abusive to people who I'm in charge of because they might go public. Have you heard from other students? We said, well, you know, actually, we have a similar situation at our high school. Actually, I have. One of my friends, he's from another state. He saw my journal article like on the first day and was like, this is the nonsense that my high school is going through right now. And I know parents from other districts in New York, where I'm from, who also have the same complaints. I mean, like a lot, a lot of people have these complaints. I have friends at Yale who have these complaints about their hometown high schools. Tell me a little bit more about this racial equity group that was supposed to speak. 
or maybe they did speak, I'm not sure. So I, I'm speaking from Canada, and there's this profitable sector now. Some call themselves consultants or educators, some this like kind of a spiritual dimension, if it's in the indigenous sphere, educating people about how racist they are. Well, part of the issue here was that my teachers and the adults wouldn't actually tell me what was going to be presented. As we know, I did not sign off on the check for student government to fund this, but somebody else funded it. I don't know who. And the group did actually end up coming to the school. There were a couple of controversial moments in the presentation, for sure. Like, for instance, there was reference to Nicole Hannah-Jones, who's the author of the 1619 Project. Like, this was mainly about, quote, systemic racism on Long Island, where I live. It's in New York, just outside of New York City. Systemic racism being this idea that a lot of our societal infrastructure in the United States reinforces racial disparities. Which is not a crazy thesis. There are plenty of historical examples. In some cases, it's baked into the architecture of cities where like certain neighborhoods, they, you know, they run freeways through it and they destroy the, the communities. And they don't say, well, we're doing it because this is a black neighborhood. They just do it because there's less political resistance there. And my problem with theories of systemic racism is that they're unfalsifiable. And I guess, well, this happened to you is that if you push back a little bit, it's it's almost like you're seen as a religious unbeliever. You've put it perfectly. So yes, the presentation was good in that it identifies a lot of historical, really like disgusting issues from Long Island, where I'm from. Long Island is unique, actually uniquely bad when it comes to a lot of this stuff policies that destroyed black communities and really caused segregation so they they presented they presented a lot of that information but then there's essentially the question is whether we can take the leap from this history versus why things are wrong today that was the issue that i think a lot of my friends took with it pretty sure they made reference to white privilege which is this idea that white people in the united states have such a vastly different experience that it's worth categorizing as a privilege to be white you see this in elite university programs here in Canada, where I go and I give a talk there, or I interview people there, and sometimes I'm the only white person in the room. Often, a lot of it is South Asian, East Asian. And then it's kind of weird because someone will get up and talk about white privilege, and in that context, it feels weird. I don't presume to know the demographics of your high school, but I do know there are parts of Long Island, a lot of the, the best schools and best programs are not dominated by white people in many cases. Like, how is that circle squared? It's a good question and it's worth getting into. I will share with you the demographics of my high school. Largely Jewish, largely Asian, and largely Hispanic. And public, right? Yep. It's a really excellent public school in Long Island. Very high rankings. Students going to great colleges. Really students getting a good education and then, and then finding that when they show up to college, they're set. They're really well equipped here. And what I take trouble with, I guess, the most is particularly with there being a lot of Jewish students who are deemed as privileged. Jewish kids from persecuted backgrounds like mine, who, by the way, like statistically speaking, are the most likely to experience a hate crime in the United States, are Jews. And being told that we're like at the top of a power structure doesn't really make sense. And also, on top of that, you have this issue of like, yeah, you're right. Like these are non-white people being really ambitious and successful. And it goes to show why the narrative of white privilege is reductive. There's a lot more to our day-to-day -day lives. I do not think about my race that often. And I think a frequent response to this would be like, oh, well, Sahar, you are a beneficiary of white privilege. 
but I don't look white because my mom is Middle Eastern. And again, like I said, if somebody in this country is going to commit a hate crime, I am like the most likely to be the one dealing with it. Maybe if I were like even more visibly Jewish, that would be a greater issue. But still, like my my synagogue is at risk and I'm not lamenting, I'm not complaining. As a matter of fact, a large part of the Jewish identity is strength and perseverance in the face of widespread hatred. And I think when you see immigrant communities like mine being so successful, you can't just say like, if you're not white, that's like going to be a severe impediment. For instance, my mother, who's even more visibly non-white than me as a Middle Easterner, she had a bunch of hardships when she came to the United States and made her way up. The first one being that she didn't speak English and the second one being that she was poor. It was not like a question of color discrimination because she was dark. I'm putting together a few details here. Is your family like Iraqi Jews or Sephardic Jews? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My mom escaped revolutionary Iran and my grandfather was a Holocaust survivor. He escaped the Nazis on my dad's side. So my dad's side is Ashkenazi Jewish, European, you could say. And my mom's side is Middle Eastern. So this gets us to a little bit of the the unfalsifiability of some of these doctrines. You know, systemic racism must exist because your family can't get ahead in life. And you say, well, actually, I'm not white. My family has gotten ahead of life and it's been pretty great. And you say, oh, well, that clearly means that you are a beneficiary of all this systemic racism. Yeah. There's no evidence that you could present to get out of that logical trap. You know, if you... <laughs> if you prosper, it means you're benefiting from white supremacy. And if you don't prosper, you're a victim of white supremacy. Compounding this is the fact a lot of these places that focus the most on some of these equity doctrines, they're full of really rich, successful people who just don't have that much day-to-day connection with true oppression. Do you think some of this phenomenon is there's a lot of very privileged people who don't have much connection with true poverty or oppression? They don't know many people in that state. And so they're vulnerable to abstract ideas. My high school administration, the ones presenting this to us, first of all, entirely white. Second of all, we have very few, if any, to my knowledge, black teachers in the school. And third, it's not like my administrators were approaching black communities in the first place. Like, it actually seems to be very distant from them. Some of the symbolic stuff and the training sessions, does it feel like kind of a replacement for real action? This actually really bothers me. Like, what's the deal with us not having a Black teacher? At the same time, there is also this question of why are we dismissing people's struggles on the basis that they are not the, quote, right race to experience struggles that seem to be fairly universal. Like, I I just read an article today on Substack, which is this wonderful platform for... My listeners know what Substack is. Okay, awesome. So, (laughs) So I read an article on Substack, and it was this man who was born in 1943 discussing how... He grew up in a poor rural town where like a lot of people worked on farms. Oh yeah, I saw that. I saw that. Oh yeah, it was great. And like how they were just working together and playing together. Like people were poor together. (laughs) And then when he went out into into the world beyond him and saw segregation in front of him, he had this intrinsic sense of this is wrong on the basis that we are and can be equal. That narrative gets washed away when we divide people so thoroughly on the basis of race, even when race isn't relevant to their narrative. For instance, again, in the United States with my mom immigrating here, her story stopped being about her identity when she got here. When my mom left Iran, her story was about her identity. Somebody threw a rock at her face, which she still has a scar, because she was a Jew. 
And like, obviously being a woman, as we know, per the recent brutal murder of Masa Amini in Iran, because she wasn't wearing her hijab, like that, that is where you get oppressed for your identity. She came here and the story no longer was about oppression. It was about working her butt off to become a doctor in a new language. That's incredible. She didn't speak English and she became a doctor? Yeah, no, she's, <laughs> she, she's unreal. That's not bad, you know, especially in a white supremacist society. <laughs> uh, that's, that's, that's quite amazing. But just anecdotally... I have found that some of the people who push back hardest against a lot of the most militant progressive orthodoxies, you know, the, the stereotype among progressives is it's like, oh, there's all these triggered white, at least latently white supremacists, men, men especially, but also Karens, and they're just protecting their privilege. But I actually find that's often not the case. Often it's people who are immigrants from societies where they recognize ideological programming for what it is. And when people are being forced to say things they don't actually believe. And here in Canada, like in the United States, we have a lot of Iranians who fled Iran around the time of the Iranian revolution because they didn't want to be forced to live in a theocracy and pretend to believe things they didn't, among other reasons. Same way people who fled the former Soviet-controlled areas of Europe, you know, they recognize what it is to be told that 2 plus 2 equals 5 and that you have to believe 2 plus 2 equals 5 if you want to be a good citizen. Do you see this pattern? Like, have you had these conversations with people who aren't from immigrant communities and are within your school environment and like some of the differing views there? Oh, absolutely. Another part of my article was about school curricula and students being presented with information such as, you have white privilege and you must pledge to that. And I was speaking to one of my friends whose parents come from communism in China. And he was like, Sahar, this is, this is disturbing. And this reminds me, this reminds me of my mom's schooling. And then on the other side of this, I would say is more the students who are distant from those histories. Like, I think these things are in line. If you're more familiar with your persecuted grandparents, then you're much less likely to call disparity oppression. Economic disparity. Yeah, yeah. Whereas if you live in the United States, your family has been here for a while, you're pretty much settled in and assimilated, you're much more quick to find problems and I guess, I don't want to say complain, but blow them up before actually legitimizing them, proving that they exist. Coleman Hughes calls it grievance archaeology, I think. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it's pretty good. You keep digging until you find something to complain about. And now a message from the Commercial Break Comedy Podcast, which has got to be a commercially successful operation since they're the ones with enough money to advertise on the Quillette podcast instead of vice versa. The commercial break features two longtime friends, Brian and Chrissy, who get together each Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to tease out the absurd elements of modern life, of which, as we all know, there are many. It's one of Apple's top three improv comedy podcasts and is available on all major podcast players and at youtube.com slash the commercial break. Now, look, unlike at the Quillette podcast, you're not going to get a lot of black turtleneck stuff about, you know, the demise of liberalism. But you're going to get a lot more about important topics such as psychic readings gone awry and why would anyone want to date a ghost? And you're probably going to laugh a lot, which I like to think you do occasionally here at Quillette, but at the commercial break, that's the main point. The commercial break is available wherever you find your favorite podcasts, or you can visit tcbpodcast.com, that's tcbpodcast.com, or go to youtube.com slash the commercial break. And now back to the Quillette podcast. 
And I agree with you that, you know, sometimes I hear conservatives saying, you know, they'll compare Obama or Justin Trudeau to like Joseph Stalin or like compare COVID public health policies to like gulags and stuff, which I think is ridiculous. Yeah, it's absurd. However, as you say, there's sort of a grain of truth to maybe not those comparisons, but others. There's a passage in your article that says, um, a friend showed me a lesson from his English class, a Google Slides presentation urging that students pledge to work relentlessly in the, quote, lifelong process of anti-racism. This stuff really hits a button for me because it's so obviously a secular stand-in for religion. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And he talks about a lifelong process. You know, when I was a kid, I went to Jewish school when I was a kid and, Hmm. you know, it was like Torah is a lifelong studying Torah and honoring God and this and that. And, you know, if it's a religion, you know, that's fine. It's like the whole idea of a religion is based on sort of lifelong precepts that you try and embody. Yeah. But I'm not a religious person. And it bothers me when people try and take political ideas and turn them into a religion. Because once you've decided it's a religion or you treat it as a religion, what do religions do? They, they sort people into morally good and morally bad people. And they don't debate. Dialogue is important because it allows you to flesh out what you're saying and forces you to question it and then make it stronger. So if we go back and forth about systemic racism, by the end of the conversation, Systemic racism can probably have a better backing from the person who is a proponent of that view. Whereas if I'm just told that I'm like evil and bad for not subscribing to the orthodoxy, then the orthodoxy has very little intellectual merit. And that's also something that creeps me out that people are quicker to do if they're not familiar with what we're talking about right now, if they're not familiar with how creepy it is to make people make pledges. So I know that it's creepy because of where I come from. My friends whose families left China know that it's creepy. But to some extent, if you've been in the U.S. for a while and your family has, it's very easy to hop on the bandwagon of an ideological religion. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the the expression Kafka trap. Mm -mm. It's no. this debating tactic where you say, you know, did you steal my cookie? You say, well, no, I'm not a thief. And you say, oh, well, you seem to be very defensive. Exactly the sort of behavior one would expect from a cookie thief. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have this portion here, this anti-racism lessons. You say the lesson preempted criticism by imputing to dissidents or detractors or people who objected, I guess, like you, white fragility. They, quote, close off self-reflection. They, quote, trivialize the reality of racism and, quote, protect a limited worldview. You either agree with it and say, yes, we're all racists and we need to absolve ourselves of our sins. Or you say, nah, actually, I, that's not me. It just compounds your sins by saying, not only are you a sinner, right. you're ignorant of your state of sin. It's, it's like this sort of airtight logic trap. Did you know students that you went to school with who shared your views, but were beaten down by this and didn't want to get in trouble? Or I mean, and who needs it? You're a student. You just, you know, you fought the good fight, but not everybody has that desire or energy. Were you advised to just go along to get along type thing? Yeah, I've had, I've had this discussion with my peers. I'll give you specific examples. I like to, I like to upload my interviews on LinkedIn. And one of, somebody from my school, like commented on one of the interviews, like great work. And then I get a call later that day from the person who commented saying, hey, um, somebody told me that I should be cautious on LinkedIn because people hiring might see my comment and not like my politics and not hire me. So I'm going to take down the comment, but I still really appreciate the work you do. And here's, here's my answer. We live in the United States. And if the worst thing that can happen to you for being properly courageous and fighting against something that you view as dangerous 
is getting fired, then get fired because you're not getting shot. This does not require that much courage. Yeah, although let me give you a parent's take on this. My kids are, in one case, in college, in another case, almost in college. And so I see this close up because the great thing about teenagers or young adults, which is also the worst thing, is that they're very skeptical. And if you tell them black, they'll say white. If you say white, they'll say black. And so they're actually very progressive in their outlook, but they have this teen reflex that says, you know, stop preaching to me and telling me what to think. And so they kind of act out. Even if they're not transphobic, they'll sort of make jokes about pronouns. And sometimes I find myself being kind of the voice of political correctness where I'm like, let's tone this stuff down. You know, you, you <laughs> I don't want you to get in trouble. And because we all know examples. A couple of years ago, there was this, the new editor, and I think it was Teen Vogue, the super progressive anti-racist, but 10-year-old tweets came out in which she she got pissed, I think like her Asian-American TA and made some kind of dumb references. I mean, it was, it was stupid stuff, but she was 17 at the time and it was a decade before and she had to resign. And I think every parent is like, I don't want that to happen to my kid. Have you talked about this stuff with your parents? My mom and my dad were so concerned and upset for me during this process. It was heart-wrenching for them. Like, I'm now in a place where I would say that I probably have more confidence when it comes to stuff like this. But when I was going through this in high school with my school, like, student government and school administration, and, like, this was an extensive fight. We weren't just fighting over, like, checks. Like, we were fighting over the structure of the student government so that students could be more empowered and figuring out bylaws. And it was so much administrative nonsense and meanness and bullying. My parents were like, Sahar, why don't you just back out? And I can't say they're wrong to protect me because that's sort of like a parent's role, right? It's one thing that really works in the structure of family is, I think, and also this is like debatable, like super debatable. Like I was literally debating this like a week ago at debate. But what I think is very common, you put your kids before anything in the whole wide world, including ideological rightness and wrongness. Kids ought to push back a little in these situations. This was an important experience for me to have independently. So don't necessarily stop urging your kid to be a little more PC because you're worried it'll get her in trouble. But when she pushes back, I would say the answer is like, okay, like, I love you. And let's just make sure that you're able to cope with the consequences. I just want to return briefly to some of the feedback you got. So a student who contacted you got sent to the principal's office for refusing to sign an anti-hate pledge? Yes, this is a true story. And I double-checked with her before putting this in the article. So, like, our school has pledges against hate. Like, I will not be hateful. I don't believe in being hateful. But a lot of students don't believe in pledging, especially pledging frivolously when it's performative. Like, she sensed that, like, the school isn't actually doing something to stop hate. Administrators are rampantly bullying students Again, we don't have a black teacher, and here you are trying to look good by saying that you got the entire student body to sign this pledge. No. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp, an online therapy service that can help you get to your best self. So anyone who follows me on social media or listens to these podcasts knows that I have a lot of stuff on the go. Family, writing, podcasting, gaming, culture war shenanigans... And while I try to put on a good-humored face during most of these escapades, the truth is that no one, including me, is immune from life's anxieties and hang-ups. And I've learned that talking to a therapist can help with these issues. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists, available 100% online. 
Plus, it's more affordable than other kinds of therapy. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with the therapist, and if things aren't clicking with one, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. There's no waiting rooms, no traffic to deal with, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash Quillette. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Quillette. That's something so conservative about it. I'm reminded of these sort of like virgin pledges from Christian schools. I think most people who've studied young people know that an anti-hate pledge will probably be about as effective as a virginity pledge. Like <laughs> I used to be a practicing lawyer in New York State and New York State for lawyers used to have a question that said, do you pledge to uphold the U.S. Constitution and do you swear that you are not a communist, a member of the Communist Party? Yeah. And that was struck down as unconstitutional. It was, it was conservatives who wanted this to be part of the process. And I tell people, says, you know, I'm the furthest thing from a communist, but the only thing that would kind of make me sympathetic to communism would be someone shoving a piece of paper in my face and saying, test to the fact that you're not a communist. And I'd be like, well, you know, let me, let me do some reading on Marx and Engels. Like I, but it's, it's crazy to me that progressives are doing this. Well, anybody can do it. Like anybody is susceptible to this. For me, but not for thee. But then you get into the Kafka trap where it's like this kid who, who wouldn't sign good for them, who wouldn't sign the anti-hate pledge, like I'm guessing they were saying, well, then you're either a hater or you're hate adjacent or you're enabling hate. Yes, yes, that is exactly what happened. Like as, as it was described to me, first of all, multiple adults in the room and one student. Second of all, the, like, the student was made to sit on a chair that was height-wise actually lower than the adults, which is like, and I know these, these details are like, they it's important. It's like a struggle session. Again, I don't, we both have distanced ourselves from crazy analogies. But in terms of the atmospherics, these struggle sessions you hear about in China, the architecture of the room is designed to elicit shame and intimidation. Exactly. So it's just it, literally exactly what you're telling me is what she described to me, which which goes to show how predictable this is. So I often get email from people saying like, oh, I, I have a government job and the human resources director is bringing me in because it was discovered I have a blog where, you know, I'm gender critical or I oppose affirmative action and I'm going to be cross-examined about it. And my advice is always, you got to record everything because they're going to gaslight you. They're going to come back. They're going to take a decontextualized thing. It's going to become like this drawn out process and you need to keep your receipts. Yeah, that's, that's my advice too. And also there has to be the option of going to the media and, be, and you being a whistleblower because otherwise they'll never back off with this nonsense. But this has a Yale connection as you may know, I guess by now he's a third year law student, but there was a second year law student last year who was taken up on ridiculous allegations of racism because he had used the term trap house. house. And the only reason that he became the hero of that story instead of the villain is he walked into a meeting very much as, as, as the one you just described in regard to this, this other student who contacted you, where there were two senior members of the law school staff who were just hectoring him about how he needed to apologize. But then, you know, when you're doing it, even if it's legal to record people in those circumstances, depending on the jurisdiction, you kind of feel like you're being sneaky. One thing that I used to do, which is different, I got called to the vice principal's office to be most likely than not to be berated for more student government nonsense related to the bylaws. And I brought my friend with me who was also in student government. And I walked in with him and he was like, this is just a meeting for us, like the vice principal. And I said to him, if this is student government related, then he can be here too. And he said, no, I think we can just talk about this between the two of us. And I looked at him and I said, I don't feel safe having this meeting alone. 
with the two of us and he was infuriated. He was so angry that I said explicitly that I felt like I wouldn't feel quote safe. Mind you, I am not quick to use that terminology and it's not good terminology to use. I largely used it because I'm like hijacking their terminology of talking about like, oh, like what makes us feel safe and what makes us feel unsafe? Like, okay, if this is the lingo, then I'm going to run with it. It's like we're raising a generation of lawyers. Oh yeah, we're getting really good. I mean, so, because like the thing is when I was a kid, the reason I was taken to the principal's office was usually like, I don't know, someone broke a window or there was a fist fight or, you know, I mean, it's once you get into like moral thought crimes it becomes so much more complex with all these Kafka traps and, you know, ah, you said the forbidden word. Oh, but you said the forbidden word in describing the way I said the forbidden word. So which of us is more forbidden? Like <laughs> that becomes really complicated. Would you describe this as part of your intellectual development at high school? Like, are you a different person intellectually than you would have been had this whole kerfuffle? And it was over $375. It sounds like this was kind of a foundational high school experience for you. <laughs> Intellectually speaking, I don't really know that I can say that because so much of this administrative stuff is nonsense and like really simple. Like, okay, simple thing. Dialogue, good. Stifling speech, bad. I've I've definitely developed more reasoning behind those two premises. But like, I can't say that I ever had any reason to actually like investigate my own opinions during these fights. Like it was more a question of like, please don't attack me. I'm not evil. I now try and choose to investigate things independently. And my friends, you know, often discuss this because the subjects got brought up in school. And I would definitely say that it makes a lot of students more thoughtful because kids do question what's in front of them. Part of why I've kind of not like struggled too much in this process is because my message is is like simple and just has to do with my family history, which I'm super familiar with, the importance of speech and dialogue, which I've become super familiar with, and being on an anti-bullying campaign. Because it is a form of bullying. They say, bullying is the worst thing you can do. And um, please come to my office to, <laughs> to endure. Uh, well, I mean, that the thing, the kid who went inside the pledge, I mean, how is that not bullying? Oh, yeah, it absolutely is. And what they did to me was also like, Sahar, do you think that slavery is debatable? What kind of rhetorical question is that? I see this all the time when it's like you de- debate whether a female rape shelter should have to admit a male-bodied person as a volunteer or a worker, and the first thing you hear is, oh, I see, so you don't want transgender people to exist. Everything has becomes apocalyptic from the get-go. Yes, yes, stuff like that. Like, just, just basically like, oh, so do you not support the existence of X or Y? So before I started recording, we had an interesting exchange. I asked if it was okay to introduce you as a freshman, right? I want to be politically correct, right? You said something very interesting. You said sometimes people will correct the usage of freshmen and say first year, but they usually do it ironically. Like they kind of mock offense like, oh, don't call me a freshman or first year. I thought that was really interesting because as somebody your age, you're inhabiting this woke progressive culture where there's all these rules, but you're also a young person who is surrounded by other young people who delight in irony and you know are funny and are at an age when they like to be irreverent. Is it the case that most people who are even a place like Yale, which is infamously politically correct, they kind of do want to joke around about it and maybe they're sick of some of these rules and if administrators and maybe some of their like highly ideological friends would let them, they would just be a lot more playful and ironic about some of the stuff? Yeah, absolutely. The answer is yes. Most people are normal. Most people are tolerant. Most people see things for what they are. So one thing that I've noticed is like, yeah, like, 
nobody will actually get offended by anybody saying freshman. That's like not, that's like not realistic for how we function as people. Like we need to have normal discussions where we don't feel like we're walking on eggshells. Another really powerful example of this is during orientation, we had, we were trying to discuss sexual assault and rape. And we had basically the people discussing this say like, okay, before we begin in giving you advice on how not to get assaulted, we just want to clarify that when we give you that advice, we are not blaming the victims. We are blaming like the perpetrators have 100% of the blame. So don't take this the wrong way. And then everybody applauded. And then they never actually ended up telling us how not to get sexually assaulted. <laughs> and I like, I like, I spoke to my friends about this again, people from across the aisle and they were all like, yeah, like that was pathetic. Like I need to know how not to get sexually assaulted. The controversy you're describing has been going on for before your time. And, and as a parent, you face it because you're like, you're trying to protect your kids or your friends or whatever. And you're like, oh, there's some common sense stuff maybe you should do to minimize risk. And and there was a period a couple of years ago at the height of the Me Too movement where like, you could not say that. Yeah. And I I remember thinking like, what the the hell like this you know you're not allowed to give people useful advice because it might be interpreted as ideologically off base but but like i'm guessing your generation for all the public woke stuff on twitter and stuff in your private conversations i'm guessing you've completely moved past that and you do have candid conversations yeah yeah yeah. no well like people are so normal people are just normal like this is a vocal minority that likes to act this way in public so have you had an easier time at Yale? I mean, you've, I realize you're a freshman. I guess you've only been there a couple of weeks. How does it compare to high school? Are you kind of like, oh, crap, here we go again? Actually, yeah, that's what I was expecting. But I feel pretty comfortable here. People are fairly open. They're really inquisitive. They want to know what the truth is. And that kind of comes before being, you know, oppressive or being a bully. Like, nobody likes bullying. Listen, I think that I will need to find myself in a situation where I make administrators unhappy, and then I could give you a solid answer. But as of now, I felt pretty, pretty great. Sahar Tartak is a freshman at Yale and a fellow at the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, where, full disclosure, I serve as an advisor. Thank you so much for being on the Quillette Podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Quillette Podcast. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events. 